welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. We are continuing our sermon series called Jesus Is, uh, and we've been looking at uh, really four Uh, central works of Christ in the life of the believer. Uh, As a four-square church, we're part of a denomination that puts highlight on kind of these four specific areas, that Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Baptizer in the Holy Spirit, Jesus is Healer, and Jesus is Soon and Coming King. So it's a way to take the scope and work of Christ and put it into four really helpful places of focus and buckets to highlight so that you can kind of wrap your head around the fullness of who He is and what He does. And so we've been uh, spending some time just kind of unpacking this so that we all have similar footing and foundation. And the last couple of weeks, we've been highlighting the idea that Jesus is Savior, right? Surprise, you're going to hear that at church probably every week, that Jesus is the Savior. But we spent two weeks on that. One, we were looking at the things that Jesus saves us from. Uh, 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 an example of that would be we're saved from sin and death. And then we spent a week talking about what it means to be saved to newness of life in Christ, to the plans and purpose of of God. If you take kind of that idea, we're saved from sin and death, but we are also saved unto life everlasting. And so we've been bridging the what are we saved from to the what are we saved to and kind of been on that journey together. And this morning, we're going to move to kind of that second bucket of thought, and that is the, the focus and the highlight of the central work of Christ as baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And the reason why this is something that's significant to highlight on its own is because oftentimes the way that the Holy Spirit is to be at work in our lives gets absorbed into the central thought or the central theme of Jesus being Savior. And instead of seeing a significant, um, purposeful work of the Holy Spirit continuous in our lives, we relegate Him as to almost like a sidekick option for something that Jesus did once, and now we're just going to try to figure out how to live good and be better people uh, in the process. And one of the things that you find in Scripture, specifically in the Gospels and specifically this morning as we unpack the Gospel of John, is that this idea that Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit or the one who empowers us with the Holy Spirit. It is a central theme, central focus, and central work of Christ in the life of the believer. And again, as a central focus, it, for many of us, has been relegated to the peripheral, something that seems a little bit abstract or something that may be even something new for us having heard, because oftentimes it's not held into that central space. And when it comes to the idea of the the baptism of the Holy Spirit, depending on kind of your denominational background, depending on your your church history, maybe your experience, that can be a a statement that is kind of a loaded statement, or it can be super ambiguous, and you can be left scratching your head as if, like, I've never even heard that before. And everybody kind of finds themselves on a spectrum of what that is, but it is something that is central to who Jesus is and what He wants to do in our lives, not just something that was central to the work of Christ that He wanted to do at one time, but something that He continues to make offered to those who would call on the name of the Lord to receive and to experience because it's something that He primarily wants to do in our lives. And kind of getting our heads around this and straighten it out is something that helps us when it comes to pursuing this 
and receiving it. Uh, it's hard to receive something that you're not ready to. I love how Pastor Tom led us in worship to, to kind of let go of things and open our hands so that we can receive from the Lord. It can be hard to kind of receive something when we're not ready to do that. So it helps frame our expectations for that. And the other thing that it does is it enables us to begin to partner with the Spirit of God in a way where we get to walk into that newness of life that we were talking about, where we get to start to experience it, not just in a salvific moment, that means that I was dead in sin, now I'm alive in Christ and I get to go to heaven, but where I get to actually experience the fruitfulness of the kingdom of God in my day-to-day life, that the life that I'm living today with an eye on eternity is something that begins to be vibrant and thriving and fruitful, and it is descriptive uh, or described in all the ways that uh, life is described in Christ, but many of the ways that we don't actually experience it in our day-to-day. And so bridging this idea and understanding how the Spirit of God walks us into that is something that's really important as well. Um, when I lived on the Front Range uh, and pastored there, I was a, a bivocational pastor. What that means is that I pastored at a church, but I also had a full-time job in the community, and I was a teacher. Uh, I taught high school English for seven or eight years, something along those lines, and uh, was doing youth ministry at the time, so it was a good way to be involved in the community. But after moving to Sterling and having pastored here for a few years, I had one of my former students look me up and call me up. Uh, And he had walked through a particularly difficult season in his life uh, where he uh, had been struggling with addiction. And it was something that had really kind of racked his person and had made a mess in a number of areas in his life. And he was moving at different times through rehab and through processes to get into freedom. And he had found himself in a season where he had completed rehab. He was still wrestling a little bit with some of the actual physical withdrawals that come from that type of a process. But as he was on the other side of kind of that dark night and really anticipating moving into a freedom from something that had really held him in bondage for a long time, he found himself struggling not with the physical uh, withdrawals. He started wrestling in his mind and in his soul and his spirit. And particularly at night when he would try to find peace and solace as he would try to rest and recover, his mind and his heart would be plagued and tormented oftentimes by really, really dark thoughts. And he was somebody who was a Christian. He was somebody who had yielded his life to Jesus. He's somebody, he, he knew how to at least pray for those things. And so he had been trying to pray for the Lord to help and to deliver and, and had been doing his best to kind of walk through that situation. But he really, really felt overwhelmed by darkness. And I know that many of you could relate to that type of an idea. And so he was looking for help. He was looking for assistance and he called me up. And so we began to have a conversation about what he was walking through and kind of the very real uh, hurdles uh, physically that take place when you're walking out of that type of a lifestyle. But then the spiritual things that we often struggle with and what scripture would say would be spiritual battles in a sense where there's actually demonic oppression that's looking to inhibit you from walking into the freedom that is yours in Christ. And so as we had those conversations, and as he was trying to describe his prayer life, he was trying to describe the way that he was praying and contending for the things of God, and I, and I could tell that he was doing it in kind of a, a begging way, kind of a pleading way. It was kind of like a wishful thinking way, but it wasn't an authoritative statement of declaration or freedom that is his in Christ. There, there, it, it didn't have power and conviction behind the way that he was describing it. So I asked him this question. I said, have you, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? 
And again, depending on how you've heard that phrase or what it implies to you, that can be something that's accessible or it can be something that's ambiguous. But I was testing the waters here to see where he was. And he said, yes. And it surprised me because the way that he was describing prayer and the way that he was describing having to to deal with kind of spiritual difficulty wouldn't have suggested that that would have been his answer. So I followed it up and I said, "Will will you tell me about when that happened? And what he began to describe for me wasn't actually what I had asked him. He started to describe for me what we're going to do next week, and that's water baptism. He was describing when he had gone to church and when he had been baptized. And when he had been baptized, his pastor said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's how we're instructed in Matthew Uh, the last chapter, to, to go and to make disciples. When that had happened, he was assuming that's what I was asking of him. And so he didn't have a context or a framework of what it meant to really be empowered by the Holy Spirit towards kingdom living. He had a framework for understanding my language as being baptized in water. And so he didn't understand what I was asking, and there was a gap in what he needed to do spiritually to move into freedom. And what I have found is that that's not uncommon. Like that idea that either those two things are equal or that one is present and one is far off or that both of them are kind of, I'm not really sure what to think about that and so I don't really have any formed thoughts about that. But that's, that's really a common place for a lot of people. And some of that is because we don't uh, preach or teach on it maybe frequently enough. Some of that is because uh, there are whole denominations and there are whole lines of Christianity uh, that would dismiss this type of thing altogether, uh, often because there's been over-enthusiastic demonstration of uh, silliness or uh, times uh, where it's just kind of been messy in general. As, as people look to partner with God in His work in the world, they bring themselves, and you can just look around. This is what God has to work with. Go ahead, look left, right. Like, like He's doing miracles, isn't He? Um, And so because when we participate with him, we bring our stuff, and sometimes our stuff is still being worked through, like it can be easier to just dismiss this type of thing altogether. But the the baptism of the Holy Spirit is intended to be a central work of Christ in the life of the believer. And regardless of, of all of the nuance of how that's expressed or the theology that's built around it, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on that this morning, what I do want to emphasize is that the idea of Jesus being the baptizer in the Holy Spirit, that is not a peripheral idea in Scripture. It is a central aspect of who Christ is, as central as Jesus being Savior, although we don't make it that central of a focus very often. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. Lord, we ask that you give us soft hearts to receive from your word today. Lord, that the the soil of our heart would receive that seed and that it would take root and that it would bear fruit. And Lord, in that parable of um, the good news, Lord, there's described the enemy who would come as a bird and and would rob the seed from hard hearts. Lord, may our hearts be soft and may the place where the enemy would want to look to rob what you would do in our lives today, Lord, may those plans be thwarted in the name of Jesus. May each heart here be receptive to what you would speak to them today in Jesus' name. Amen. With your Bibles up and open, if you've got your smartphone or your tablet, go ahead and open up your Bible app. But I want to encourage you to go to John chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at a few verses this morning. 
um, that kind of uh, unpack the centrality of Jesus as baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Now again, this morning, we're focusing on this uh, aspect of Jesus' ministry. We're focusing on the fact that he, just like last week, is Savior, and we couldn't go into all of what that means, although we did a good fly over the last two weeks. Same thing this morning. We're going to be looking at this central aspect of the work and person of Christ, but we're not going to be able to unpack all of what this looks like or all of even what this means. In fact, uh, you could do a deep dive theologically or doctrinally and go into all kinds of different kind of ideas and different veins of this that have academic value and have application value as well, but we can't do all of that this morning. Um, There's a whole study of the Holy Spirit as a theological focus point. It's called pneumatology. And if you're curious about it, because I had somebody at the first service that was, it's pneuma with a P-N-E-U. He spelled it phonetically, and it took him to pneumatology, which was the study of nematodes and roundworms. That's not what I'm talking about. You can't spell it phonetically. You've got to spell it the way that uh, it's, it's spelled from uh, really the root Greek word. So we're not talking about roundworms. We're talking about the Spirit of God. But in John chapter 1, as John begins his gospel, he focuses in at the beginning on the work of John the Baptist. John's calling people to repentance and preparing the way for Jesus. And in Matthew and Mark and Luke, you have similar stuff. John the Baptist and his ministry is there, and then the work of Christ. And they all start at kind of different points uh, in, in uh, timeline, and they all kind of spoke, focus on different initial focuses. But as John moves from the idea of John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ, you have uh, an interaction between John and the crowd that lays out a couple things that speak to the expectation they should have. So in John chapter 1, verse 29, this is after Jesus' baptism. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, now what John is saying there is he's saying, look, This is the Messiah. Look, this is the Christ. Look, this is the Savior. He's using salvation language here to draw everybody's attention to the fact that the one that they had had heard prophecy of, the one that the longing of their soul had always been uh, toward, that he was now here and that it was him, it was that dude right there walking. John's calling all of their attention to that. And then he gives this testimony And this testimony is regarding something that God had spoken to him about the one who was to come, and he links it to Jesus' baptism when John baptized him. It says, then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Now, the other gospel writers all record Jesus's baptism specifically. They, they record the narrative, and when Jesus comes up out of the water, it says that a dove descended on him. The Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove, and then God spoke from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. All the other gospel writers record that event as a narrative. John skips that, assumes that we already know this, and goes to John's testimony about the event. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself didn't know him. I didn't recognize him at first. But then I understood, right, the one who sent me 
to baptize with water told me. So God had spoken to John ahead of time and said this, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one, now look at this phrase, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. As John starts his gospel, he makes two very pointed statements about the central work of Jesus. That's the Messiah, and that's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Those are the two statements that he makes. And he doesn't make them as if they're the same thing or that they're enveloped into one activity. They're two very distinct, very intentional statements of Christ's work. And what you find here, and what I want to start with this morning is this, Jesus always intended to not only provide for our salvation, he always intended to empower us with the Holy Spirit. It's not a secondary thought. It's not an add-on. And it's not just like a part or a piece or a complement to this one other work. He intended to come and to make salvation available to us. And because of that salvation, now the Spirit of God is made available to us as well. If you were to do kind of a a pneumatological study, you like that word? Spell it out correctly. Don't phonetically spell it. You're back to roundworms. But if you were going to look at that scripture-wide, you'd find in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was never inside someone. He was always on. The language of the Old Testament says that the Spirit of God would come upon somebody, and it would be for a time, for an assignment, for a a role. It would be for a, a, a title. And then the Spirit of God would leave at times. And you see this actually demonstrated in the life of Saul. Um, He was uh, both a winner and a loser in his time. And he had received the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit left him. It's it's one of the most lamentable passages of Scripture in in my perspective. But in the New Testament, instead of the Spirit of God coming on and jumping off and coming on and jumping off, the Spirit of God now is made available to take up residence in us. Paul would use this language of salvation. He would say, you've now become the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit indwells you, that He takes up residence inside you. And that idea and that indwelling has to do with salvation. It's receiving the Holy Spirit into us. But this idea of baptism in the Holy Spirit, right, which is very clearly a second thing, a second focus, a second central work that Jesus would do, is not about the Holy Spirit coming into us and receiving salvation. It's about the Holy Spirit pouring out of us. It's an outpouring of power towards the things of the kingdom of God, participating in the things of the kingdom kingdom of God. But what I want to start with is just the idea that this has always been a central work of Christ. Whether it's been received, whether it's been relegated to the peripheral, whether it's been dismissed altogether, it's always been something that Jesus has done. And even when we're not comfortable with maybe the language or some of the doctrine or theology that's built around it or some of the silliness that has maybe accompanied it at times, maybe we would uh, take away that language and we would express it in a different way, but it's still something that Jesus is doing and continues to do. Um, I actually have friends who, if I sat down with them and we were unpacking this, they, they would say, that's, that's not, I can't get to that place with you. And they would have uh, kind of a theology and a doctrinal stance and a, a church tradition that would really inform that type of a thought. But what is so funny to me is at times where I see people who would say, God doesn't work like this, where when I watch them live their life and I see what God does with them, he does all of these things and they're actually partnering with them. They're just using language that doesn't offend them 
or cause them to have uh, uh, cognitive kind of hiccups. They, they don't have to overcome kind of a thought. And they're literally practicing this kind of stuff even if they won't give a voice to it. And how does that happen? Why does it happen? Because Jesus continues to do this. And if you have an earnest heart and desire the things of God, then you will walk into the fullness of them, even if you're telling yourself that's not what you're doing. Because he can work this through in your life. But Jesus has always intended to do this. Now, the second thing is, is that this idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, again, we're not going to unpack all of the nuance of this. It's not the same as being baptized in water. They are separate and different acts. And instead of trying to build like a, a, a whole bunch, again, of theology or doctrine around that, I just want to point you to some words from Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, you have um, really some teaching of Jesus that is recorded right before his ascension. So this is taking place after his resurrection. If you are a student of kind of the timeline of that, when Jesus was raised from the dead, right? Easter's coming, we're gonna celebrate that. But when that took place, it says that for 40 days, he met with his disciples and he continued to appear on earth. He continued to encourage, he continued to teach and preach, and he continued to demonstrate that he was actually alive. So for a 40-day period, Jesus was still here doing things. And in that time, on one of those occasions, this is what was recorded of his teaching and encouragement to the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, Do not leave, okay, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised which you have heard me speaking about. Now, he's speaking about the Holy Spirit there. If you read through your Gospels, you'll find on numerous occasions that Jesus talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit and that he's going to ask Dad and Dad's going to give it. Okay, so that's constantly the language that he's using. He's backcasting that with his disciples, and he says, hey, pump the brakes. Before you go on and take on the world for the kingdom of God, you have to have something that's going to enable you to do that first. So pump the brakes, sit still, and wait for this promise. And then look at this. He says, for John baptized with water. Okay, that's baptism of repentance. That's what you see in the first chapter of John. That's what Jesus did, and that is what water baptism is. Next week when we do that, baptism of repentance, that's, that's water baptism. John baptized in water, but in a few days you will be look baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it's distinct. It's different. His disciples had already been baptized in water. They were baptized in water with John. They were baptized in water when Jesus was baptized in water. And so he's saying, hey, this is not that. This is different. And then in verse 8, he says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So he's talking about something that hadn't happened yet, but they had already been baptized in water, and they had actually already received the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, one of the times after Jesus' resurrection where he comes into their midst, it says that Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. But that was something that had already taken place. They had received the Holy Spirit. It was when the Holy Spirit took up residence in them. They were indwelled by the Spirit of God. But very clearly, they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet. This was a, se a separate thing that was going to take place. And so Jesus sets up their expectations for that. And what you find, again, without being able to go deep into those nuances and, and, and differences, water baptism has to do with salvation, 
And water baptism is a symbol outward of what has taken place inward. In fact, water baptism, apart from that declaration and apart from the work done in you, is nothing more than some dude dunking you underwater. Okay? It's, it's, it's not in itself really that special, but it's a living theater that we do to say, hey, I died to my sin and I'm alive in Christ, and now I'm going to demonstrate to everybody that that's the case by doing this publicly, and it is an act of repentance, primarily being I'm changing the way that I think and live my life, and I'm orienting the person and the activity of my life to Christ. Okay, and so that, that's, that's what you're looking at there with this idea of, of water baptism. And if you want to get really theological, if you want to do some pneumatology, what you would find is that Paul teaches that when you are saved, we'll use that language, that you are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that picture, or that is reflected, of water baptism. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit baptizing you into Christ. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the language of Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so one has to do with being placed in Christ in salvation and receiving the Holy Spirit, and the other has to do with an empowerment with a releasing of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life into acts of service, spiritual service, into holy living, uh, and into a deeper intimacy with the Lord. And so you, you see, just as far as what Jesus is saying here, and again, there are all kinds of different avenues that people run with these ideas, but let's just keep it simple. Jesus makes a distinction between water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit, and he makes baptism in the Holy Spirit a primary work that he wants to do in our lives. And so again, we're staying here, central, before we get out to kind of all of the different types of ideas. But the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be something that is demonstrated with power. You can begin to imagine or have argumentative nuance about what that is supposed to be. That's secondary and peripheral. But you should have power, the power of God demonstrated in your life if this is something that you have received and that you are partnering with and walking into. Okay, so Jesus has always intended and continues to be this. He intends to baptize his people with the power of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit, they're different and they're distinct. Um, They can actually happen at the same time, which is really interesting, and that causes some different hiccups. And scripturally, there's a bunch of different kind of timelines of people who were baptized in the Holy Spirit and then got water baptized. Um, It's it's an interesting type of thing. And so you've got to unpack all of those things. But again, let's just say simple, they are different and they are unique. But the other thing that I want to hit on really quickly is this, and, and this is where it gets practical for you and I, that this intention is for your life. Okay, and this is one of the things that often, because it's a peripheral thing within a lot of church, it gets relegated to, that's nice, Jesus did that at one time, but it doesn't apply to my life or he doesn't want to do that with me, or it's not something that is important maybe even for me. In fact, there are some different kind of discrepancies in the way that people would even look at this. Uh, Nobody would argue that Jesus didn't do this or that he had never intended to, but there's all kinds of ideas that would say that he doesn't do this anymore, that he's not interested 
in doing it anymore. Or he still does it for people who are super special, but it's not you because you're not special enough. Or you're too special depending on how you're using that word. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's, there's this tendency to say, yes, but not you and not for today and not anymore. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 2. And again, there are, are reasons and thoughts uh, for, for people with well intentions who I would say fall on those different spectrum of understanding. But in Acts chapter 2, we just read in Acts chapter 1, Jesus' instructions to the disciples, right? Stay, don't do anything, pump the brakes until this happens. In Acts chapter 2, it happens. And they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know how it was going to happen. They just did what Jesus said. They waited until they knew without a doubt that they had received power. And in Acts chapter 2, it records that. It says that they were all together, that they were hanging out in prayer, and then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God shows up and things begin to happen. You can read for it for yourself. And it's more than just the 12 or the 3. It's not just the special ones. There's 120 that have gathered in this place that are all having this similar experience. And the immediate result is that they go out and they start sharing the good news of the kingdom of God, and they start drawing people to the good news in Jesus Christ. And people start responding to that. How many of you know that there's a difference between sharing the gospel and somebody responding to the gospel? Right? Some of you have been sharing the gospel with your family members for years and years and years, and there's no response. Some of you have shared with somebody, and you've seen the response. The response is dramatic, isn't it? And what happens here is not only do they share, but people are responding, and it's, it's like this explosiveness. Most people would say this is where the church was birthed. This is the birth of the church, the way that God wants to work through his people in this kind of new paradigm of salvation. And so as people are responding, and as they're like, hey, uh, how do we say yes to this? What is our next step? What do we do? Peter says this. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. This is in verse 38. It won't be up there, I don't think. In the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent and be baptized. So he's talking about that salvation. He's talking about that water baptism. He's, repent, be baptized, receive salvation, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. And the way that he is describing, and in the immediate context, the gift of the Spirit is being talked about as in the way that they just experienced it upstairs in the upper room is where it's usually uh, uh, identified. Like literally, like, hey, this just happened to us, and if, if you'll receive salvation, this is going to happen to you. That's the expectation. And then he says this, and this is what's important for you and I. He says, the promise is for you, okay, so those who are hearing, your children, okay, so for your household and kind of the next generation, and then there's this phrase that says, and for all who are far off. That's not a geographic statement. That's not if something was happening here, and I said, oh man, the, the, the Lord is moving here this morning, and oh man, it's, it's great that you guys are here at Sterling Foursquare, and what God is doing is for you and for your kids and children's church, and then when I say everybody far off, we'll, we'll loop in like maybe like Brush and Holyoke and some of the outlying communities. No, it's not a geographic term. It's a term that uh, reaches into successive generations. It's a future time type of a statement. 
And what Peter is saying here is super important for you and I to hold on to as a promise from God's word, that when Peter speaks here and he says, when you receive this gift, that this promise is for you here present, for the next generation, and for every consecutive generation. It's a promise without end. And then when he closes it, he closes it with this statement that says, Um, that it is going to be for all who respond to the Lord, specifically saying, for all whom the Lord our God will call. It's an ongoing, continuous promise to any who would respond to the call of repentance and salvation, which, if I'm not mistaken, includes us. If you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then his intention to impact your life with the presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit is for today. It's for you. And there's all kinds of ways that we can begin to say, well, I don't, I don't know how that's going to look, or I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with that, or I don't know if I've got an answer for that. Or I, I know somebody who would, who would say they've got a kind of a verse or a perspective that would kind of maybe diminish that. Like that you can get lost in trying to have all of the right argumentative answers and go to seminary and go get a degree in that. Or you can take God at his promises and just begin to ask. And see, that, that's what gets us to our response this morning. See, I, when I was younger, when, when I was a younger pastor, when I was a younger believer, I felt really insecure about issues of faith that I didn't have an answer for. And maybe you feel that way. I was afraid of questions because I felt like if I didn't know the answer, that somehow God didn't have an answer. That, that's my insecurity. I've got friends who would listen to this message and they would say, hey, we would take issue with this thought or, uh, you know, I would have built that point out differently or, hey, I'd like to illuminate maybe your perspective in this way. And I'm actually perfectly comfortable engaging in those conversations because the gap that I have in my knowledge or my understanding in no way reflects on my limitless God. And what I do know is there's some really simple things in Scripture that when I try to get too informed in my person, I can talk myself out of the promises of God and then scratch my head when I see some people who seem to have lesser knowledge basking in the fullness of God's promises. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like the disciples. That when the 12 were walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, all of the learned were like, how are these country bumpkins getting anything done? In fact, they had an accent that everybody could recognize as coming from an uneducated region. God wants to move in power. And let me, let me just move this to something really simple. If you desire the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, to walk in the, in the power of the things of God, all, all you have to do is ask. And you may have more questions than answers. And you may always have more questions than answers. But in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, I think this is one of the most important scriptures about the Holy Spirit. And it's not even primarily a scripture that would be 
unpacked in a study of the Holy Spirit because it comes out of the context of Jesus' teaching on prayer. But he makes a very simple statement about the expectation that we have of our Heavenly Father, and he says this. He says, if you then, though you are evil, right, though you miss the mark, though you still get tangled up in your sin, though you're still finite, though you're prone to wander, all of those things that are true of us, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? See, this is the reason why I have friends who wouldn't necessarily agree with all of what I've spoken, but who have walked and functioned in the power of the Holy Spirit before. Because they just simply had a desire and they asked. And once their theological arguments or constructs were out of the way, they were able to just be led by the Lord into specific, dynamic, demonstrated power of God. And we use this phrase in square three, which if you're interested in this stuff, we do a deep six-week dive on all of this. And I'm teaching square three right now. It's my favorite class in our equipping class process. But this is our verse. And this is how we put it into layman's terms. Dad says yes. Jesus said that dad says yes. That if I say, God, I want more of your spirit, dad says yes. God, I want to understand more of your spirit. Dad says yes. I want to walk in the power of your spirit. Dad says yes. You may not know all of what that looks like or how to even do that yet, but you have to start with this belief that dad says yes. And in John chapter 3, and again, that's where we started this morning, and this idea of, of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of a follower of Jesus, John actually has this as a central theme in his gospel, and it's, it's mostly uh, marginalized. But in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, on the the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he washed the disciples' feet, the night that he instituted communion, he spoke, spoke more about the person and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer than anything else on that sitting. But in John chapter 3, verse 34, we bump into this verse where John is speaking about Jesus, and he says, for the one whom God sent, and he's speaking of Jesus there, speaks the words of God. And if you read your Gospels, you see time and time again where Jesus says, I don't speak my words, I speak what I hear the Father say, and I speak those to you. So John is repeating that perspective, but then he says this, for God gives the Spirit without limit. And what I know from those scriptures Regardless of of how I would build a theological construct and regardless of all of the nuance of how it could be expressed in daily living, okay, so getting away from all of that and just making it simple, I know that Jesus has always intended to do this in the life of his followers. I know that if I ask, dad says yes, and I know that he doesn't hold back. God will never be chintzy with his spirit, if you ask. He will never withhold his spirit from you, if you ask. And I think that that's where we begin. We begin with a heart that's just open to receive the spirit of God, but then to respond and move in the power of the spirit, because dad says yes, 
I'm going to ask you to stand this morning, worship team, if you would come forward. I'm going to ask you for just a moment to um, close your eyes. And I like what Pastor Tom had us do earlier. Just put your hands out in front of you. Lord, we've seen today that there is an intention that you have for our lives to be in partnership with your spirit. Lord, that your spirit is at work in us as we receive salvation. Lord, your spirit is at work in us in sanctification as we're remade and we're formed into the whole and holy person that we were intended to be. And Lord, we've seen that you have an intention to empower our lives to be led by the Spirit. And Lord, there's all kinds of ideas and experiences around this that would seem to inform one idea over another. And so out of all of that intricacy and nuance, we bring ourselves to this simple truth. Jesus, you said that if we ask for the Holy Spirit, that the Father gives. And your word says that he gives without limit. And so, Lord, as you awaken a desire in us to not just know about you, but to partner with you, Lord, would you awaken in us a courage to ask for more of your Spirit? Lord, if there's an area in our life where, like my young friend, there's um, spiritual struggles and oppression, Lord, we pray for more of your Spirit. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to bring freedom. Lord, places where we struggle with addictions and bondage, places where our brokenness is still unhealed and those jagged edges cause brokenness in others. We ask for you to come and by your spirit bring healing and wholeness. Lord, for the places where you've called us to take incredible steps of faith and we've balked because we haven't seen a way to do it in our own strength, Lord, may we be empowered by your spirit with boldness to follow you into the fullness of the things that you have for us. And Lord, as we admittedly walk through this in a way where we would say, we don't know it all, let us know you in a deeper way. And in faith believe that you still do great things. In Jesus' name, amen. A few action steps for you this week. I want to point you to that Luke chapter 11, verse 13, just that verse. I would commit it to memory. It's a good one to hold on to. Dad says yes. Number two, ask God for more of his spirit. Okay, if you ask, scripture says that you receive. Number three, receive it in faith and then walk in that grace in your day to day.